Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to today's episode of Arba'in Reflections. Today's episode is on spiritual gains. It's on a very practical spirituality, which in the tradition of the Ahl al-Bayt and of the religion of Islam is not something which is so extreme that we cannot attain spirituality. Rather, in our lives today, we can find the means to live a spiritual life. But the question then is, where does it come from? From what do we form this spiritual life? Who gives it to us? And what does it actually mean to be spiritual in the West? Because this term is used quite disparately. Um, but the way the Imams lived and the way the Quran speaks about spirituality is a very clear lifestyle. And so we, the listeners, would like to attain a portion of that. And to have this discussion, we are joined by um, two, two fantastic guests. First, we have uh, Sheikh Mohammed Khani, who is a student in Qom for uh, over a decade and from Denmark, and he works very much with the local community in Denmark to teach the youth and the community in general about the true teachings of Ahlul Bayt and of Islam, and is working very hard in the West. And we have a sister, Dr. Amina Inlos, who is an academic, a PhD, um, a teacher and a writer, and she has a new book, in fact, coming out, which she has been working on, um, uh, on Imam al traditions of Ashura of Imam al Hussein, which is coming out quite soon. And she joins us too to provide her insight and her intellectual and academic background supports her and her engagement with the community. And her upbringing also helps her very much to speak on this topic with myself and Agha Muhammad Ghani on the topic of spirituality. It's practical and it's something which we need to know how to implement in our own lifestyles. Let's begin, inshallah. When we use the term spirituality, that can mean a range of different things based on different cultures. It seems like even non-Muslims have a view of spirituality or they use the term to describe something. And so often it's hard to know exactly what we're speaking about when we say spirituality in the Shi tradition. So uh, Sister Amina, when we are using this word spirituality in its technical sense, what are we speaking about? What is spirituality from the Shi'i tradition? That is a very good point to begin with. Uh, I think you hit, hit on something important there with the introduction in that the term spirituality does seem to be rather modern. Uh, and it is generally a, a word in, in the context that we're using it right now that's come from the modern West. And I think that's probably because of the modern split we have uh, in the quote unquote secular world between the material and the spiritual. Uh, and that if you go back a few hundred years to a lot of societies, east, west, north, south, etc., um, you do find in general in these societies, there was more of a holistic view of creation. That is to say, a sense of meaning and purpose, a sense of the importance of the human being, a sense that the human has uh, non-material dimensions as well as obviously material dimensions. Whereas one can say one of the main uh, transformations that European style modernity eventually brought to the world because it didn't happen immediately, but basically by the 20th century was this idea that the most important thing is that which is tangible and we're not exactly quite sure about the things that aren't tangible, but they're not really worth talking about. So I think it's only because of that split that we actually have the word quote unquote spirituality. Now I did give it some thought before this discussion uh, and I still can't quite think of an exact term that we have in our tradition for spirituality. I would say Arfan is the closest, uh, which is knowing. We do have a strong emphasis on the Ma'rifah of Allah, uh, even in the early texts. Uh, so perhaps the uh, 
inner experiential knowledge of Allah and knowledge of higher realities and realities about the existence, the soul and creation and so forth. Uh, I think that would probably be the closest thing that we have to an, an inherent quote unquote spirituality in the classical Shi'i tradition. That being said, I don't think we should discard using the, world, the word spirituality uh, because we are living in a world uh, in a lot of places, uh, not just heavily secularized countries where there is a very strong split between the material and the spiritual. So it is important sometimes to use words like this uh, to be able to pinpoint what is missing and to help people fill in the gaps. Beautiful, thank you so much. So now we have a context of the material and the immaterial in which we are trying to understand which fits into which category. And it seems like spirituality is very much concerned with the immaterial. Sheikhna, when you look at um, the tradition that we have, do you see this emphasis on the immaterial in our spiritual tradition? Yeah, but uh, we don't divide it, just like the sister she mentioned, we don't divide it in the material and the immaterial, like uh, the, the spiritual. Actually, like the, the whole concept of seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not something that is divided into spirituality and into the material. We actually are using this world or the means that we actually have in this world to reach the higher goal. And that itself is a so, so, some sort of spirituality. So we, it's not like Islam is demanding that we are, what is it called, uh, refraining or staying away from the material, but using it, uh, uh, this material world as a mean. That's why we have a beautiful hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he states that dunya mazra'atul akhirah Like, it's like a, what is it called? Like, you have to harvest for, for, for the afterlife, for the hereafter in this world, in the material world. Because there was an individual who came to him and told him that he was tired of this world, the material world, where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told him that don't be tired of this material world. It's only an introduction for the next life, for the hereafter. So we don't separate between the two. And we see that seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as spirituality, but it's not something that is divided or not, what is it called, or separate from the material world. Like the sister mentioned, like in different parts of the world, uh, where they're separated. And in Islam, we don't do that. There's no separation between the two. Yeah, uh, I wonder because when we do phrase spirituality too much about the immaterial, like we focus too much, it becomes almost like an impossible thing to attain. It becomes, yeah. the language is so abstract, it's so like you have to retreat from society and you have to live this very yeah. uh, aesthetic life. And it seems like we're making it harder for people than it really is. Why, why, why are we doing this? Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's some basic things that can improve our spirituality because spirituality in Islam, within Islam, is seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you can, you can do that by like some simple means or actions throughout your daily life. Some, for example, sincerity in your intention, focusing on your prayers, for example, having discipline in your prayers, being focused in your prayers, prayers. Uh, a concept like tafakkur, contemplating, for example, over your existence, why you're here, so it's like simple things. If you have a discipline doing these different actions throughout your day in your daily life, it's going to be very easy to actually reach that kind of spirituality that you should be seeking instead of that new age spirituality where it's all about feelings. But 
If you look at the traditions from Ahl al-Bayt from Imam Baqir if I'm not mistaken, there's a beautiful hadith where he states that our actions should be repeated like with discipline throughout two, two years or more than that before you can actually see the, the, the fruits of that action, before you can see the effect of that action. Because a lot of youth, unfortunately, they think that having spirituality, you can attain it without actually sacrificing. And that's the main issue that we actually have amongst a lot of youth, that they think that without sacrificing, you can reach some sort of spirituality and have that feeling within, within, you, within you. But that's simply not true. Like Islam is about sacrificing, right? And when you do it with a greater purpose, you actually understand why you're doing it. You start contemplating over the, the greater cause and why you're here, your own existence and the purpose of life. So going back to your question about uh, the whole abstract thing that spirituality is just some sort of feeling, like an immaterial feeling and something that is very like far out and you can't, you can't really reach it. That's simply not true. You can do it by just the simple actions that we have within Islam by being focused and disciplined and contemplating over why you actually are doing these different actions or different deeds that is obligatory within Islam, such as the prayer, the, 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 the fasting, and so on and so forth. The, the emphasis on discipline is very important, and you mentioned it a couple of times. It's as if the, the Shi'i... Um, and the spiritual path has very clear practical tips of what we should be doing and clear steps towards a very clear goal, which is ma'rifah of Allah. Now, this discipline, Sister Amina, what is it composed of? What are the actions or requirements that are practically part of this path to Allah from, from, from our discussion? Well, I think one of the first good things to look at is the overall value of discipline before getting to specifics, although the specifics are very important. As you were discussing just a moment ago, uh, the human being is composed of both body and soul. Uh, some scholars would say that even in the Barzakh and the hereafter, we are to some degree still composed of body and soul, just a different sort of body. So we can't get away from the fact that we are not entirely composed of soul, and therefore there's going to be an interchange between the body and the soul. If a person's body is uh, not functioning in the sense that they can't speak, they can't walk, etc. They're not going to be able to translate what comes from the soul to other people. It's going to remain with them personally. And similarly, as we all know, usually we know um, what we experience or do to our bodies, uh, whether it's actions or what we eat or you know, substances or how, just how we take care of ourselves. Sometimes our basic health and that also either it affects our ability to interface with higher spiritual realities, uh, or it could have some impact on the soul, including a long-term impact. Can I scare people? Jeez. We all know that in the Akhra, the hereafter, it's said that when we do deeds in this life, they become manifest in the next life. So, for example, someone who is eating people's wealth unjustly might have a giant belly protruding or even be like a, a pig or something like that, and so on and so forth. So we don't see the realities of deeds in this world. This is one of the aspects of a heavily materialist worldview, by the way. People say 
might say ethics is relative entirely or morality is entirely relative because these things don't have a objective reality. Uh, but in our worldview, they do actually have an objective reality that becomes manifest in the hereafter, even though most of the time we can't perceive it in this world. I'd say people like Ayatollah Behjot and so forth used to perceive these things clearly. But in general, we don't see them in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, so in that regard, there is an interchange between the body and the soul. So if we are disciplining the body, uh, it's going to have a corresponding effect on the soul. Now, before I lecture people on the importance of saying their prayers on time, I'd like to point out that this can really extend into a lot of areas which are also recommended in Islam. A lot of times, sometimes we just focus on the prescribed, jurisprudentially prescribed acts of worship, which are very important. Uh, but as we know, Islam is holistic. So in general, you can say having a disciplined lifestyle to the extent of one's ability can aid in the development of one's spiritual connection, perception, and realization, and just remove some of the noise in the same way that sometimes our internet connection is not very good and we have noise. Uh, so, for example, if you want to take something like salat, the salat in and of itself is a very a disciplined act. That's one of the main effects it has on people, apart from connection, connecting them to God. If you actually pray your prayers on time regularly, or most of the time regularly, uh, it does make you much more disciplined than someone who doesn't have an equivalent discipline practice. Especially, let's be honest, the Salat al-Fajr. I mean, I used to think about that sometimes back when I went to high school. Most of the other kids in class are not getting up at dawn to pray. Now, now some of them are. I had a Buddhist friend whose family used to make her do that, but many of them are not. And that discipline is something that carries out in your day-to-day -day life and also affects you spiritually. But adding to that, if someone is genuinely taking this very seriously, they're not just going to jump into the salat. They might make sure the area is very clean, that their clothing is very clean, that they haven't been stuffing themselves with crisps and chocolates and, uh, I don't know, fizzy drinks and stuff because it's going to affect their brain. Uh, they might probably not going to get into an argument with someone right before the salat. Afterwards, they're likely to be a bit calmer. So this sort of discipline can extend beyond the actual rituals themselves. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and that in and of itself can have a very transformative impact on a human being, uh, both in terms of their daily life and also in terms of their spiritual interfacing. Sheikh, I just felt very targeted by some of those points. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what are your thoughts, Sheikh? Uh, that's a beautiful point. Actually, one of the things that he would tell his students when it came to spirituality or having being focused in the prayer, he would, used to give them some sort of exercise where he used to tell them that they should sit for five minutes every single day outside the prayer and focus on one certain thing. And when they start thinking about other things, they should, they should quickly rewind to that thing that they were thinking about in the beginning. So they focus only on one thing for five minutes in a, in a row. And after a couple of years, one of his students were practicing this. He came back to him and he, was, he asked him, so what was the reason for actually practicing like this specific exercise? He said, but because if, you don't, if you're not able to focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout your day, it's going to show in your prayers as well. If your biggest worries throughout your day is your all, is always your material affairs, your worthy affairs, it's going to show in the, in the prayer as well. As soon as you say your takbiratul ihram, you start thinking about what kind of groceries you should buy. I hadn't done my homework. 
I have to go to work. I have to pick up the kids. My wife is calling me, you know, who, who is it that is, send me a text, for example, on my phone and stuff. So you start thinking about your worldly affairs directly because you're not, con you're not disciplined enough to actually concentrate when it comes to the prayer or, or throughout the day, you're not focusing on, on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many recommended actions, which is not directly related to the prayer, but if you combine it and you look at it from a, a bird perspective, as we say in Danish, like from above, you can actually see that it's related to the prayer somehow. They say, when you wake up in the morning, start in the name of Allah, for example. A simple bismillah, just make it a habit for yourself. When you're going and brushing your teeth, are you actually doing for the, for the sake of Allah, right? Like simple, basic acts. If you're doing it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then your prayers will be much more concentrated and you will be able to have focus in your prayers because all the different actions throughout your day, you're disciplined and trained enough to actually combine it to the greater purpose, which when you stand in prayer, then you'll be like, this is the purpose why I'm living, right? Because when I brush my teeth, I do it for the sake of Allah. When I go to school, I do it for the sake of Allah. When I, for example, pick up the kids, when I bring something for my wife, I do it for the sake of Allah. Then when you stand in prayer, you'll be like, this is actually the reason why I'm living, right? Because now you got time only to focus on that. It's not mixed with other things, brushing teeth or anything else. So you're, you're taking all the other actions out, but the concentration is still there. The contemplation is still there. You're still focusing on the greater purpose of life. So that's a beautiful point that the sister actually mentioned that when it comes to the prayer and outside of the prayer, the different actions outside of the prayer, the impact it has on the prayer itself to have this discipline and seek that spirituality so we can focus on the greater purpose of life. That's a very beautiful point and valid as well. This is also a beautiful point about our spirituality in general. Every, every action has the potential to become sacred because Definitely. Whether, even if it's not a, a overtly religious act and people, other people define it, brushing your teeth or hygiene or, or all these things have their own spiritual Simple benefit. actions, yeah, definitely. And like, so that makes the entire lifestyle religious. And so it's as if we're using the term religious wrongly sometimes. Definitely. And some, some, sometimes it's, it's not even like, it's not even us coming up with these things. It's not like we're inventing these things. No, we have it in the narrations, right? It's something that, like, if you look at the different recommended actions from Ahlul Bayt, just, just, just to give you a simple, like, example of how raising your child, for example, to be able to, what is it called, like, uh, cut the cell loose from the attachment to the wealthy affairs. They say that when your kid grows up, when it, beco when it becomes five years old or something like that, you give the money to the to your kid and let them pay the sadaqah, for example, the, the, the what is it called, the, the money for the poor. You let them pay for it. So if you do that throughout a couple of years, of course, this child is going to be like trained to actually give out from its own wealth, right? It's going to be disciplined enough to actually do it. So when you're tell them, telling them when they become mukallaf, now you have to pay khums, now you have to pay zakat, now you have to pay these, these different things. They're not going to be like, oh, I don't want to do that because they, have, they don't have that strong attachment. They're actually trained and disciplined enough to actually do it. So sometimes it's not only the different actions that we define as ibadat, but actually a lifestyle that defines whether we're going to have that spirituality in our life or not. Yes, that's a very uh, beautiful way of putting it and uh, a very good reminder about child raising as well. Um, I do think that's definitely 
one of the ideals of our tradition that we see, for example, in the portrayals of, of the prophets and the imams to have constant remembrance of Allah and see everything in that light. And I do think that is, in general, one of the goals, if you will, of spiritual development to reach the point that one is continually conscious of Allah. And also one understands that whatever one is holding or, or, or using uh, is a creation of Allah, not, not just a, a thing that people built or something that I bought or was given, and that people are creations of Allah. That can be particularly challenging sometimes, uh, especially yeah, with yeah. certain people. Um, but I think there's also some very specific challenges to that in this day and age. Uh, I think one of the, I mean, okay, I wasn't alive back then, but I'm guessing, I, I think that one of the effects of the industrial revolution and the workday schedule that we have since then, or we had into lockdown anyway, the sort of eight to five or nine to five factory-ish style, even if you're not working in a factory, it does very much impose a uh, spiritual material divide. Uh, and it really pushes you more into the material mindset unless perhaps your job involves something that might, you know, it might have some, it might be involving some characteristics which are uh, reminiscent of the attributes of Allah, like if you're in a heavily caring profession, for example. But for many of us, uh, it really can eat away at the spiritual sense. And so I think sometimes a bit of extra effort can be helpful in uh, sacralizing secular space, if you will, and finding ways to integrate those times into a more uh, spiritually and materially holistic lifestyle. And I do think, incidentally, this is one of the things that a lot of people are recognizing right now just how healthy a more, for those of us who have the privilege to work from home at least, uh, how healthy a more holistic lifestyle is that as a matter of fact, um, putting people into factories, whether literally or metaphorically, it, it does certain things for society and for production and the economy, but it doesn't necessarily do things for the human being as a whole or the family or the community. And it would be good to try to evolve into other ways of being that are more supportive of the various aspects of the human being. I mean, not everyone might be phrasing it that way, but I think that's something a lot of people are feeling right now, regardless of their faith background. Yeah, and the good thing about this distinction is there's a difference between the natural inclination of the human and the societal context of the human. Because now we might have a natural desire for spirituality, but that might be nothing to do with the environment in which I'm in. Uh, Sheikh, you have studied in the East, but also in the West, and you are experiencing both. In this climate we're in now, it's sometimes it's as if the system does not want us to have that spiritual world, or yeah. there are certain barriers to it which are part of where we live. It's not coming from us. Yeah. Looking at the, the the life of the Prophet one of the things that we notice that which unfortunately a lot of people they uh, have a tendency to neglect that one of the parts of his life or one of the things that he focused a lot uh, when he immigrated from Mecca to Medina was getting influence in the society. So instead of actually focusing on masajid, focusing on giving spiritual lectures and all of these things, he actually pointed out people to take care of this political interest, the social interest of the people. Because he knew, he knew from the beginning, if we uh, can organize a society in, in such a way that it's easier for people to focus on the greater goal, the greater purpose of life, Spirituality is going to be something that is going to be easy to actually like uh, attend. Like for the individual who actually seeks spirituality, it's going to be available for him. It's not going to be difficult for him at least, right? 
that's why you see that there was clear rules that he put for all the Muslimi. The first thing he did was he said that everybody who converted to Islam, it's obligatory for him to stay in Medina and to live in Medina. So the people that converted to Islam were not uh, allowed to actually live outside of Medina. He said, no, you're only allowed to live inside Medina. That's it. Because he wanted to like, strengthen the bond between the Muslimin and organize a society in such a way and design it so it actually becomes easier for the individual to seek that spirituality instead of the Muslimin or the individual who actually believe in a greater purpose of life or divided and live different areas like they're not together to actually reflect uh, their, their, their ideas and their, their beliefs and you know the whole purpose of living they, they can reflect it with, like, with each other like, just by being present so that was one of the things that he did so it just emphasized on the, on, the, on, the, on the importance that we actually try to create that environment within the Muslim communities where we live as the sister mentioned, because it is very difficult in a Western country to actually have that. But alhamdulillah, now what I've seen, thanks to the, the youth we have in Denmark, for example, and uh, the, the jihad they've been doing in Denmark, and of course the spiritual one, <laughs> I mean, no, nobody's going to get arrested for this. Uh, one, but... We don't say the J word ever anymore. Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> striving yeah, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which word, Sheikh, I don't understand. Which word? <laughs> <laughs> striving for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The youth actually created this kind, this environment for, for a lot of people where they can feel, well, it, it can, it, it's easier for them to actually attain that kind of spirituality. So after the university, for example, they meet up and they talk about different things that are actually related to the greater purpose somehow, right? It's about serious issues. It's about actually developing as a Muslim community, what kind of issues we have. And so it's our responsibility as Muslims to actually create that, create that society within a society. So people, they actually have that alternative because if people, if they don't get it in their schools, if they don't get it in their universities, at work, factories, jobs and stuff like that, the only place that are left is the masajid, the mosques, the different Hosseiniya, the Islamic centers. And if there are no, like if you don't have a congregation that is strong and the bond is strong between the mu'mineen, the believers in that congregation, it's not going to have a, what is it called? It's not going to be appealing, especially not to the youth. So it's very important to find some youth to encourage them to be active, to create that society within a society where individuals they can come and feel free and where spirituality is actually available for them in a secular country because here in iran is very different it's very different everywhere you go you have these signs and symbols that remind you of the greater purpose of, of life in school for example when we hear adhan the classes are finished right so you're constantly reminded of the greater purpose in life in the universities in copenhagen for example it's not like that. It's not like somebody's like reciting Adhan every time your class is finished or when you have to pray. So you have to have a lot, a lot stronger discipline. and you, you, you have to be more disciplined like the sister mentioned. But if you are a group uh, and there's a jama'a, then it makes it very easy for you to actually keep up with the spirituality and keep up with the discipline because that's one of the benefits of having this congregation. But like just to give a practical example, uh, throughout the year, 
many of us we have a difficult we have a diff, it's difficult we find it very difficult to actually fast throughout the year right there's even though there's a lot of days that it's very recommended to fast but subhanallah as soon as ramadan kicks in and it becomes shahr ramadan you see that we don't have any issue fasting like 30 days in a row and that's one of the 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 the, the, the blessings of having a, a congregation that are strong you know you know psychologically you know that 1.5 1.7 billion muslims they're celebrating these days right you know that muslimin i know there's a lot of muslims not fasting as well but you know that the, there's a lot of muslim fasting as well and you eat together you have iftar together and the believers they sit together you know that's more there's more focus on spirituality and that's one of the beautiful blessings of having this community and society within the society so if we just focus on in strength like strengthen our bond to other believers in the society connecting networking with other believers in our society i think that gap which the secular which a secular society creates when it comes to spirituality we can fill that gap out with having this relationship with other believers i really like this methodology of society within a society because people often say things like you know how do you know that a 1400 year old society is relevant today you know today we're in such a hostile environment how can we implement that society internally here and the answer is even when the holy prophet did all of his hard work even that was within a hostile environment and so yeah, we definitely. are we are like adopting the same techniques in our lives i like this approach very exactly. much yeah. exactly Definitely. And I would agree that although in many ways, uh, spirituality, one can say there's a bit of a paradox. Um, spirituality in some ways is based on the individual relationship with that which is beyond. So, for example, the Quran mentions that we come to Allah uh, as individuals uh, in the hereafter, uh, which is an interesting thing to say, given how communal and tribal the Arab society was, or to a large degree still is. Uh, I don't think the concept of the individual really had much currency then. Uh, and yet there's a reminder that at the end of the day, it is between you and Allah. At the same time, I think in any of the world's traditions, uh, both spirituality and religion are human disciplines. Uh, they have been transferred person to person, as we used to say in our tradition, from chest to chest. This is how all the Islamic sciences actually got transferred, as we know, whether it's a hadith or you know, other ijazas. Uh, also, the spiritual learning is done from person to person, generally speaking, face to face, because there is a sort of, um, th there's a verbal transfer of knowledge, and there's an immaterial transfer of knowledge. And I'm of the view that some of that does happen uh, on, on a level that we can't necessarily see, but you are impacted if you spend a lot of time uh, in the presence of someone who has a very high level of faith or a high level of understanding. Uh, ethics is another subject that is very difficult to teach theoretically. I mean, we only have to look at how many religious lectures there are out there about gossiping. You know, who listening right now has not heard a lecture about gossiping? Unless you're new to the community or, or new to listening to these things, I'm sure you've heard it. But the words what to do go in one side of the brain and what the human being does happens somewhere else. So as people, we, we tend to learn through modeling and, and other forms of transfer, in addition to the, uh, the intellectual knowledge, which sometimes helps to sort that out. Uh, but the point being, that has been traditional. And yet I do think that is one of the challenges we have today. And I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. This is not going to be a lecture about why don't you go to the mosque? Well, a lot of places are locked down right now. Anyway, uh, however, 
because of the advantages of the internet and globalization and so on and so forth, one of the disadvantages is sometimes we've lost this person-to-person uh, -person transfer of uh, aspects of our heritage, including the, um, the spiritual transfer of knowledge, uh, which might have been much easier in the past. I, I think even, um, dare I say, uh, given that I did grow up in the non-internet age, it was even a bit different back then. And so this is something that is valuable that I do think we should uh, keep in mind. And also, of course, the aspect of communal worship, as the Sheikh was saying, uh, many of our acts of worship are group-based. And this also, you know, it's, it's different. We know it's different. If I recite Ziyarat Ashura at home, it's not bad. It's a very good thing, but it's, it is different if I do it with a large group of people. And we can feel it even if we can't always uh, put words in why. Uh, so both are important, but definitely the communal aspect is very important. And this, if anything, stresses the dynamism of uh, spirituality, that it can be, has its own function for the individual, as it does for the community, as it does for the entire, you know, the qawm in general, um, and even in interfaith relations as well, like it becomes very significant. But in terms of how it affects the individual, you make a good point because we are, some of us are locked down, some of us are in quarantine or no longer having access. It means that we have to reevaluate where we obtain our spirituality from. Is it from the mosque or, or is it from me or my access to the sources? Like, where does it come from? Um, Sheikh, when you speak to young people, especially, do you stress this point that where do you get your spirituality from? Where do you get that motivation from? Yeah, of course, I try to mention it because it's very important that it's not limited to the masjid because you see that throughout the history of Islam, it was not limited to a masjid, to a certain place. That's why you see that the Imams are buried in different places. Imam Qadim he was even in prison for many years. But uh, as he's, the name itself, Qadim al-Ghaith, he was one of the most spiritual of, of all of them. Like he used the time for seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while he was in prison. So it's not limited to the masjid. And we shouldn't, of course, limit it to the masjid. So we should only see the masjid and the community and all these things as a mean, not the actual purpose, you know. And unfortunately, there's individuals, when they see that there's a strong community, for example, they join just because, like, uh, yeah, they want some, you know, associates or something like that, networking. It's not a, about the greater purpose. But in, in general, I think that uh, having a strong community to help, it helps you doing that, doing that, having that spirituality and maintain that spirituality. But now because of lockdown, of course, it's limited and it's difficult. And that's one of the things I actually, I, I told the youth as well, this is a good opportunity to actually find out how disciplined we actually are when it comes to Islam. If we see that the, the different actions that we used to do on a regular basis, going to the masjid, that we have a difficulty doing it at home, then there's something wrong, right? Because it shouldn't be limited to the masjid. Uh, if you have a difficulty, for example, praying your salat al if you have a difficulty pray, like reciting certain du'as, now it's the time for actually finding out, to evaluate our own discipline and how disciplined we actually are. So I see it as, a, as a, some sort of test and uh, what is it called, a, a trial, like uh, where the youth, they can actually evaluate their own discipline and spirituality in that sense right because it's not something separate from each other spirituality goes back to your discipline and how disciplined you are and actually seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
I see this very, uh, you mentioned the Imams. I see this a lot in people's relation to the Imam. So they grow up and their relation is in the mosque. They go for the birth or the death of the Imam, they go to the mosque. That's their only, like their immediate access to the, the Imam. They hear the stories from the pulpit. Maybe they read Ziyarat together. But the moment they leave for university and, and relocate or migrate or leave that localized area where they had that relation, it's as if they have to reforge their relation to the Imam. And that happens a lot, I think, in religion generally, but I've seen it a lot with the Ummah. How can we, you know, use the, the comprehensiveness of the Imam's words? Like the Imams talk about so many issues. How do we reform that relation as the individual, not just the community? Because when we lose the community, maybe we lose that relation. Yeah. I think first and foremost, we need to fix our understanding and perception of the Imams, alayhi wasalam. Because one of the things that we are neglecting a lot is the social aspect of their lives, like the political and social aspect of their lives and how they were, they were imams chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every aspect of their life, like in every situation. It wasn't like only in the masjid that, for example, Imam Sajjad when he was in masjid, he was reciting dua and stuff like that. But when he came out of the masjid, he didn't care about Islam anymore. It wasn't important for him anymore. And I think a lot of people, because they don't understand, they, they, they have a tendency to, to think that Islam is, and of course they compare it to other religions where it's about like certain things as being good, love your neighbor, for example, and these things. And it's not a lifestyle in that sense. Then when they go to the university, they go in different places. They don't take that identity and, they, they, they put it at home, like they park it at home and then they go to the university. They have to understand Islam as a lifestyle so it actually becomes a, 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 a part of their, uh, their personality, a part of their identity. So it's not something that can be separated from them. If it's like that, then it's not limited. It's not going to be limited to a masjid. If he doesn't have a masjid, he's going to build one. If he doesn't have a Husseiniyah, he's going to build one, right? If, he does, if there's no congregation, if there's no like, uh, community he's going to build it he's going to be the first individual that's going to be active and trying to like uh, what is it called gather the believers in that community so we have to understand the imams as individuals who actually give us identity that's why Imam Khomeini one of his beautiful speeches he mentioned that uh, that the imams why is it that we perceive them as fathers because one of the biggest and most important responsibilities that a father has when it comes to his son or his daughter is that he actually strengthens their identity and he gives them some sort of identity that he gives them roots right and that's exactly the same way that the imam والسلام, that we should understand the imam as individuals who are giving us an identity not only in the masjid or in the husayniya but also when it comes when it comes to basic things in our daily lives studying for example going to the university interacting with other individuals how what should it be based on because if we don't understand it as a lifestyle we're going to have a lot of difficulties then and we don't we don't understand uh, how damaging it actually is to understand the imams in that way because then for example sins or the amount of sins that you commit for example in the universities in the schools and, the, and so on and so forth we don't understand the damage they actually do to our spirituality, to our relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we become this so, some sort of secular Muslim where spirituality is only within the masjid or in the, within the Husayniyyah. 
but outside there's no room for it and that's because we are living this i don't know there's no harmony between our heart and our action and our intelligence like our minds because we we act in a certain way which goes against what we actually are believing and what we have accepted when it comes to our beliefs and what we actually recite or what we do in the masjid so so it's like contradictive behavior and because of that a lot of individuals they're going to feel like they're going to be stressed. They're going to depress. They're going to be depressed. They don't understand, for example. And normally, it's 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 the Islamic identity and values they they sacrifice for the sake of their worldly affairs, for example. And normally, that's what I see amongst a, a lot of the youth. Uh, if they don't actually like do something about it, like uh, their their identity and understanding, the perception of the Imam Ali Muhammad. So unfortunately, especially when it comes to different uh, what is it called nationalities that we have in the West, we got a lot of Afghanis, Iranians, Pakistanis, and so on and so forth. So, and and they have a unfortunately they have a lot of uh, a, a, a cultural understanding of Imari Muslim. When I say cultural understanding, if you go to the speeches, it's more primarily they're talking about that the Imams were great individuals and so on and so forth. That Imam Ali salam, he was this individual who's mentioned this many times in the Quran. They're not giving any practical advice for the youth to actually follow Amir al by its true meaning, like the character of Imam Ali salam. They're talking about the the passport or the identity of Amir al-Mu'mineen His name is Ali ibn Abi Talib and so on, so forth. But that's not something that's going to benefit the youth. We want to know how Amir al-Mu'mineen he interacted with I don't know, with non-Muslims, how he interacted with Christians, with Jews, for example, how he, how he was in the society, how, because then you can actually be a follower of Amir al-Mu'mineen, not only by name, but by action, which is the true meaning of being a Shia, right? So we need to fix our perception of the Muslim first, and that's very important that we understand them as they were, not as we would like to, them to be, like just entertainers in the masjid and then in the Husayniya, but when we go to the university, please don't follow us, you know, like that identity, we park it, leave it inside the masjid like the Husayniya. So that's a very important point when it comes to, what is it called, uh, this whole issue with individuals that normally only, they're only like religious when it comes to the masjid or the Husayniya or when it comes to the university and schools and outside work, they have a difficulty to actually maintaining that spirituality. Those are some good points. I bring it to you because I know the, the issue of overly culture, uh, culture versus the imams. You could speak at length about this issue. I know, and I've read much of your work on this issue. I'm fascinated to know what you think. Was that directed at Sheikh? <laughs> no, to you, sister. <laughs> oh, really? Um, I think it's complicated. I can completely understand the desire uh, in the modern era to separate quote unquote culture from authentic Islam, uh, in that we understand there are some practices or worldviews or beliefs that are unhealthy or unjust that have been appended to uh, Islam. And I think we all know what they are. Uh, and so when someone says that's not Islam, that's cultural, what they mean is that's wrong and it's not the will of God, basically. I, I find oftentimes reducing something to the phrase the will of God uh, helps to put it into greater clarity because honestly some of the things people say are, are very silly that, that they ascribe to Islam or they insist on just because it's what they're familiar with and, and what they know. Um, but I also think that we can't throw away culture. Uh, we understand anything 
through the lens of culture. We, we all have a culture. Um, language is part of our culture, the metaphors we use and understand. And any religion ever has been formed and transmitted through, uh, through cultures and cultural evolution. And Islam is no different. Um, and, and to some degree, if the Quran had been brought in, say, Japan, uh, perhaps we would have some different uh, nuances in what we consider Islam, not because the message would be different, but things happen over time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's a, um, there's a value to culture and there's a, a danger. And what we're looking for is getting rid of the things which are, um, which are harmful, that that's basically the problem. I actually am of the view that uh, a lot of traditions and rituals are things that can actually have a very strong effect in cementing one's identity and also one's relationship with the imams in particular. Uh, because the human being, as we were talking about before, is very holistic and people respond to things differently. Um, and I think this is one area that sometimes we do tend to get a bit wrong in modernity in that there is such a heavy emphasis sometimes on uh, intellectual teaching. So we lecture the kids, why don't you read Islamic books? Why don't you listen to lectures? Uh, not everyone really gains their full understanding that way. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. It's, it's a good thing to do. But there's a, a broader range of the ways we take in and develop our understanding. Uh, and people who are very socially minded, for example, are likely going to get more out of large communal programs or maybe house majalis or the Arba'in walk or things where they see this as a, as a human phenomenon and they take that in and they keep it with them. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why we do have such a strong emphasis on emotional expression in the uh, Tolver Shi'i tradition is because it, um, Basically, it engraves things in people much stronger than if we simply said it. I mean, is there a sect of Islam which does not say that Imam Hussein was martyred? You read Tabari, he says it. You read, I don't know, Ibn Athir, I think he says it. And the point being, it's said, but there's a very big difference between saying it and living it and experiencing it internally. And just as when we're talking about the relationship with Allah, we do tend to emphasize if one's wanting to get into the spiritual discussion, we, disc we emphasize the experiential knowledge, you know, like Imam Ali, peace be upon him, what did he say? I, I would not worship a Lord I could not see. Uh, similarly, when it comes to the Imams, I think that one of the biggest uh, bulwarks against losing one's connection to the values of the Imams in a time of need is having that very deep emotional relationship because that will kick in at a time of crisis uh, when perhaps uh, a book just in, in the abstract will not. I work in publications, by the way. I'm not against books, but I'm just saying that there's more. And at the same time, people are all different. Um, and I think this is another area that perhaps as a community we could uh, work into considering that uh, someone who is very, um, you know, again, very, very maybe socially minded or a very strong level of emotional intelligence may develop more religiously and spiritually through being engaged in that sort of work, such as uh, charity work or community service work. Someone who is heavily intellectual, they do well at Hausa usually, uh, or they do well in the library. Um, they don't necessarily have to see a lot of people, that that's another type. Um, you know, there are people who are more physically minded or who are more materially minded. Uh, and there are plenty of avenues to spirituality which aren't in the quote unquote formal um, mosque arena, uh, such as spending time in nature you know, is a very common one. And that's very effective for some people. And we can combine all of these things, you know, I mean, 
it's been a while since I, I've seen it done, but I, I remember going to a couple youth retreats in the mountains. So you all get out and pray under the sky and you're looking at the mountains and it's very beautiful and it's very different to a lot of how a lot of us live uh, in this day and age. So my, my point is there's multiple routes and I personally, you know, just going back to the culture issue, I don't really advocate trying to throw away culture. What that oftentimes becomes is simply replacing one culture with another one. But I think it's good to take a balanced view and really highlight the main issue, which is justice and are certain views harmful or unjust? And if so, then we shouldn't be speaking them in the name of God or in the name of Ahlulbayt. Jeff, do you take the youth to look at the, the mountains in Denmark? It's a perfect place for it, I would think. Would I have any mountains in Denmark? We only have green hills, so oh. we have no mountains. It's a flat earth, so. Those are nice too. Yeah, it is beautiful. Like, like you know, we, we actually take them out for a lot of trips. Like, every month we have two trips outside of the masjid for the youth, and it's something that we made obligatory. Sometimes it's going out in the nature, sometimes it's paintball, sometimes it's go-kart, it's different, right? But just to strengthen like, the bond between the, the youth. But sometimes we have spiritual programs outside of the masjid as well. We read Dua Kumayt, for example, in the forest, go out and have a barbecue or something like that. So I definitely agree on that. And uh, like the whole concept of filtering like the different bad parts of the culture outside and, and then take the good parts of the culture of course that's very important as well because without a culture it's going to be difficult to have any identity and then you're going to seek an identity in other cultures and values and you're not guaranteed that this, they're going to be uh, as islamic as the culture you actually have from back home so uh, that's a very good point uh, because some like sometimes when i speak it sounds like i'm anti-culture but i'm i'm not anti-culture uh, i just think that uh, there's that there's some elements within different cultures that we need to focus on so they don't what is it called uh, uh, dilute, like divert uh, the, the message of Islam to an extent where the, the, the message is being forgotten like the, the imams are being the purpose of, of uh, what is it called of the creation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because sometimes it actually gets to that extent where like it's only about sitting on the member and talking great about individuals and not so much about how we can actually follow the example of these individuals. So we don't understand the function of the Imam because yeah, certain cultural elements uh, within different cultures. So uh, one might offer that from a, Oh, sorry. Did I interrupt? That's, no, that's, no, not that's, haram, that's certainly not good. Um, one might offer that in a very deep or um, yeah, deeper sense uh, you, no one can really fully understand the imams. We only get to levels. Mm. I know where you're going with the sister, but you can't go too deep. But you have to explain a little bit more. <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you look at the position of the prophet and the imams before Allah in the, uh, in the context of what we have narrated in our tradition, you know, like Al-Kafi and, and similar books, uh, they, they do have a very strong uh, presence in the... The world beyond what we see, which is beyond, um, you know, beyond what most people, including myself, are ever going to understand. I'm not going to rule out every single person, uh, but in general, of course, if we if we limit uh, understanding to the imams, like Imam Ali said, to tell the truth. And I'm, by the way, I'm not being facetious, and I'm not talking down to you. I, I don't mean this like as a personal attack, but I'm just saying that, yeah, maybe maybe sometimes this this isn't emphasized. We do sometimes 
um, you know, li limit the teachings of the imams to things like uh, be nice to people, be good to your neighbor, which we can mostly get uh, without the imams. Uh, you can go to a lot of people and be told the same things. Uh, but those are stepping stones and they are important. And I would say by and large, uh, if I may start up soapbox time here, uh, one of the things that I've unfortunately consistently seen over the years, um, if we are talking about uh, the youth, is that there doesn't always seem to be a transfer of what I would consider to be the most important authentic Islamic values to the youth or even the adults, let's be honest. It's not only youth. Uh, and I think the most important of those is an absolute sense of tawhid in the sense of tawhid in the sense of servitude to God combined with freedom from the rest of the creation. <coughs> Sorry, which is an ideal. I, I'm not there, certainly. Um, I've got all sorts of entanglements and people who I consider to have power over me and things that I'm afraid of and hoops that I jump through and so forth. But that is the ideal. You don't see the prophet, for example, uh, being afraid of human beings, um, whether it's socially or in terms of his, his safety and so forth. Uh, so that's a number one value from which everything else stems. I think if you get that, um, you get justice down uh, in, in an absolute sense. I mean, combined with compassion, of course. I'm not talking about the sort of justice where we attack people for every infraction, but a avoiding injustice perhaps is a better way of phrasing it. Uh, and, and a few other key values, then the other things will tend to fall in place. And, and yet sometimes... Um, I find like a, a lot of our religious discussions these days are actually very focused uh, directly or indirectly on the topic of identity. Um, it can be sometimes we're pinpointing certain sectarian issues and talking about them as if we care about them because they're so important. But the only reason we really care is because they're sectarian issues, like um, how to do wudu. Now, I'm not saying it's not important, by the way. Don't, don't misquote me. But I'm saying I've never seen a passionate speech on why we do raku in prayer. Most Muslims will agree on that. But there are a lot of passionate speeches about why you do wudu one way or the other because it is an identity issue. And there are certain historical issues that are identity issues, which have a place. Um, identity is important, but it's not the limit. And I think at some point, uh, young people check out from that. And they say, okay, well, I've, I've got Khadir home. I've got um, you know, the basic idea of imamate. If, if they've been following these things, what comes next? And there isn't always something that is provided that comes next. So there are, there are things above identity issues, even though identity is important. And I just wanted to kind of drop in here too, since you guys, or sorry, that was rude, but you both have been discussing um, identity issues, that if we are talking about the youth, and by and large, at this point in life, I do not think youth are the only quote unquote problem area. I think actually we've got an enormous gap in the middle-aged area of, of people whose needs are not being served. Um, but if you're talking about, say, from about 14 to 22 or 23, you've got some basic life changes there or life issues. And identity formation is a critical thing there that's going on. Um, starting to think for yourself and question the views you were brought up with is something that goes on. Um, and if we're talking about relationships with the imams, probably figuring out what is your relationship with the imam or what is your relationship with Allah is going to be going on too. The peer group is very important then. Uh, and these things, they take time to go through, but they have a state, they have a phase. Usually for most people, they, they finish up. I mean, they might resurface throughout life, but that's what goes on at that age. So what you're talking about is to some degree part and parcel of what happens to people naturally at that age. And spiritual growth for most people also has a, um, 
at a, what do you call it, an evolution or a trend. I, I mean, Muslims are not the only people to identify the age of 40 as sort of an age of spiritual awakening and spiritual maturity. It's not to say it can't happen before that or doesn't always happen at that age. But the point is, in our younger years, we're oftentimes on a growth trajectory or we're basically primed to have other priorities, which might not be focusing on what we might call spirituality or rather the spirituality might be expressed through other things. Uh, especially having and raising children. I mean, it, it's a very spiritual thing, but in and of itself, the, the act of creation is, after all, what Allah does, and, and the act of looking after people and raising people is what Allah does. Um, but that's a different sort of spiritual act than sitting and contemplating in silence, which people don't tend to do when they have three-year-olds running around. Uh, so what I'm saying is there's a life trajectory, and the peer group, the, the identity, the, the questioning, figuring things out, that that is basically what you do as a young person. So it's good to be there and support it, uh, but also acknowledge it has its place and there's other things that have their place. Yeah, um, a really good example of, of that difference is I think the relationship someone has to Aba Abdullah, to Imam al-Hussein. So that often people are, are very attached to mourning for Imam al-Hussein, which is of course a beautiful thing, or the external manifestations of Imam al-Hussein. But what about his servitude to God and his, you know, his freedom, like the, the interior, which is not always accessible. And you're right, it's a trajectory. Like as you grow, your relationship becomes more and more deeper and more and more intimate. And the hope is a person keeps moving forward in that relationship. Um, Sheikh, I think for me, this helps. For you, do we see Imam al-Hussein being used in this, you know, directly relevant to your spiritual life in the way that the sister was alluding towards? That's a difficult question. Uh, when it comes to human beings, we don't have access to the hearts of human beings except through our actions, right? So shedding tears for the Abba Abdullah it's limited how much it actually has an effect on an individual. I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't have an effect. The emotional bond that you create to Abba Abdullah is very important because one of the aspects of human beings is emotions, right? We, have, we are emotional by creation and that's completely normal and it's natural. So therefore, we need to take care of that need that we actually have and create that emotional bond. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains it in the Holy Quran as well, that he hasn't created two hearts for, for, for a man. Like you only have one heart, you can only get attached to, to one certain thing. If it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through Abu Abdullah, then it's a positive thing. But if it's not that, it's going to be something else, which maybe not be as positive or even like beneficial for you as the love that you can have for Abu Abdullah So I think that the emotional bond for Abu Abdullah is very important. Uh, but if you don't follow up on it in action and understand Abu Abdullah as a lifestyle, it's going to cause some issues and some conflicts. And it's not going to guarantee that you're actually going to continue having that emotional bond to Abu Abdullah What protects the emotional bond to Abu Abdullah is that you actually try your best of course, I'm not saying that you can follow him or be like him completely, or, but just the fact that you can be, maybe your perfect perfection is 1% of Abu Abdullah. Different people have different capacities, right? But just as you're trying to follow Abu Abdullah, you are actually guaranteeing or protecting and preserving that emotional bond that you have to Abu Abdullah. So I think that's a very important point that to mention because a lot of people, they think it's about shedding tears or it's about no, sometimes you have to follow up or protect that emotional bond. The emotional bond is not always there. You have to protect it. Uh, and you, you protect it through action. 
protected by actually following the person, you know, understanding and implementing the values that he stood for. And that's the whole concept of seeking closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. You create that emotional bond and you follow up on that emotional bond and you try to implement the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala except for one attribute which is mutakabbir. You try to implement the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your own existence, right? By having like trying to look at the attributes of Allah and trying to acting upon the attributes of Allah when it comes to the creations or your relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which creates that bond, emotional bond as well, and strengthen your spirituality or that spiritual, uh, what is it called, journey that you have towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the greatest means to actually have that is Abu Abdullah because that emotional bond is already there, even though if you're a person that you sin a lot, if you have a, committed a lot of sins throughout even for the most hopeless person Sometimes When it comes to Abu Abdullah He doesn't have a difficulty shedding tears When it comes to his prayers He has a difficulty shedding tears For example, creating that emotional one When it comes to dua, he has a difficulty Shedding tears when, But when it comes to Abu Abdullah it's, it's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created him as a, as a mean to have that emotional bond To him as a bridge for Between like the creations and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala That emotional bridge that there should exist which make which we don't have in, in a lot of actions throughout our lives for example like the different ibadat we have within Islam but it's like it's something else when it comes to Islam, and that's a beautiful part of it but it's of course it's it's there's some conditions one of the conditions for us to have that or preserve that emotional bond is that we actually try our best to follow up on it so that's an important point that we have to emphasize a lot on when it comes to uh, the community, especially the people in the West, right? When they have to understand Islam as a lifestyle and Abu Abdullah as a lifestyle. Because our scholars, when they talk about Abu Abdullah, they, they say that he's a school of thought. He's not only one person, he's a school of thought. There's so many things that you can learn from Abu Abdullah and what happened in Karbala, which makes it a school of thought and an ideology for itself to how to seek closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My, my heart is telling me we need to discuss this further, but my mind is telling me it's been one hour and we're coming to the end of the discussion. And so sister, if you allow that to be the final word and if we may end, we really hope that the listeners um, ponder on, on this point in particular and the general nuances of spirituality, inshallah. Thank you both of you so much for taking part in this discussion. Uh, it was a pleasure for, for me and for the listener, inshallah. Um, if we could end together on a salat ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. So there we have it. The spiritual path of Ahl al-Bayt is one which is about recognizing God, Ma'rifah. But in order to get there, we have to navigate a number of potential obstructions which could come in the form of our society, this material world, um, our existing biases coming from our culture or our own biases against culture. We have to work with the resources which we have in order to make and fashion for ourselves a lifestyle which has within it uh, each step which is coming from the religion which takes us towards God. Every action before and after, for example, our prayer helps us and prepares us for that prayer and that prayer takes us towards God. Um, we hope and pray the listeners, uh, all of you and, and myself, that we can actually live this and make sure that we are practically following a thing which attains a victory which we are all seeking, which is, of course, the nearness to God. Thank you for listening, and we will see you soon, inshallah.